welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a band leader, composer, piano player from Boston, Stephen Viet. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young. Today, we got Stephen Feifke with us, right? That's correct. Okay, got Thanks it. for having me, Leander. Like seven times. Good. <laughs> <laughs> seven times the charm. Yes, that's sad. <laughs> Could you please introduce yourself, give a rough summary to the people? Sure. Uh, my name is Stephen Feifke. I'm a pianist, composer, arranger, and orchestrator based in New York City. I've lived here for, uh, well, since 2009, so just over 10 years. Um, we are here today discussing my recent uh, big band release called Kinetic, which came out in April on Outside in Music. And yeah, we're, we're excited to, to chat about it and get inside the nitty gritty of the record. <laughs> well, first thing I want to ask is where are you originally from since you came here? From yeah, I'm originally from Lexington, Massachusetts which is a suburb of Boston, about Boston. half an hour outside. Yeah. <laughs> the jazz scene there is not too hot, but yes, understood. You, you think so? I, I mean, I, I think that it's it was a great place to grow up. You know, I, I it, Ralph Peterson was around when I was growing up, George Garzon, Jerry Berganzi. You know, I had some amazing professors as well that I studied with when I was younger at the New England Conservatory, Dave Zofford, Doug Johnson, Rick McLaughlin. Um, those are some, you know, Ken Schaphorst, even, you know, the, he was the director of the NEC, is the director of the NEC, NEC jazz program to this day. And there's just a lot of opportunities for young people in Boston to get their ears and, um, you know, brains exposed to jazz. Um, so I feel that, I, and I, you know, I used to go to the NEC prep program and every Saturday I would sneak into Wally's to go hear Jason Palmer play. Um, so I really think that Boston does have a strong, strong scene. I, I wish it got more credit you no, know it has professors it has intellectuals but i think it's more for academia scene yeah i think that that could be yeah there's definitely fewer performance venues like if you compare it to somewhere like new york city um you know where you can go well in pre-covid times and now we're coming back um where you could go to hear a show at the vanguard and then head over to mesro and then catch the late set at smalls or go to Rose Hall and then head on over to Dizzy's to catch the late set. You know, it's not that kind of a town, um, but you know, it still has for what it for the size of the town, Boston. It's a city, but right, everybody who's from there calls it a town, um, Boston town. Um, it has a great scene of you know. There's a I, I came up playing in the Beantown Swing Orchestra. That was some of my first exposure to big band music, um, aside from playing at my in my high school ensemble. Um, I, you know, I think that the academia there is definitely strong, but there is certainly, if you're uh, looking for it, there are certainly opportunities to get your your feet wet, or in my case, my fingers wet in the performance scene. Good point in your own ways, but you don't feel in any way, shape, or form that the academia world is one of the problems with the jazz community. Limits, oh man! Yeah. Okay. Go. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's no. You should go ahead. I was just tacitly agreeing. Okay. Yeah, why do you agree? Um, I mean, the it's like an instant. There's well, there's I don't know which direction we should take it in. Take it um, wherever you want to go. Um, 
I don't know exactly like if how to begin discussing it. Okay, um, I'll start with because of the academia world being so rigid on their teachings and you have to learn a certain way, it limits certain type of development. And then on top of that, it makes people, how should I say it? It puts them in a box. They have to become out of touch with what the real world is listening to. And then we have a whole generation of kids or people who have less and less interest in jazz. Yeah. Um, well, I think you can attribute that to more than just academia, um, the latter part of what you said. Um, but to just, you know, I'm, I'm rereading the Miles Davis autobiography now for like the third time. It's one of my favorite books. Um, and he talks about, you know, his relationship with the critics. Um, and then in the late 60s, you know, he's coming out of the second quintet with Herbie, Ron and Miles and, and Wayne. And um, there's a shift for to um, to rock and roll. Um, and critics start pushing that. And, you know, even, you know, there's some racial elements to what he's discussing as well, where basically the critics are, are they want to push uh, music that's being created by white people instead of by black people. Um, and he cites people like Jimi Hendrix as part of the reason that they are loved by critics is because they have white British people in their band. I mean, I, that's the other side that I'd like, I don't know exactly how to address, but like needs to be acknowledged nonetheless. And I, you know, but to your point about like academia, putting people in, in a box, you know, I have to say that personally, I never found that to be the case in my education. Um, I found that I was very lucky to have teachers um, that were open-minded, that were um, very helpful in kind of like really expanding what I thought jazz was, could be, is, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like even referencing it as jazz was could, could maybe be, there could be a, a misperception in, in, in that communication. Um, of what I, what I intend to say. Um, so, but I, but I also think that I, I seeked out teachers who were open-minded and who were going to expand my boundaries, um, and what I listened for and looked for in, in the music. Okay. But Miles, even when all that was going on was conforming to the own way. Notice that he put a bass guitarist in there. Yeah, right. When Dave Holland joined the band, like he started asking, like, that's the reason that Ron Carter left the band is because he didn't want to play electric bass. Yes. Um, you know? Um, yeah. And then Dave Holland, like, you know, he wanted some, someone who was going to play electric. And you know, he, he talks about having Herbie Chicken, Joe Zawinul in the band at the same time, all playing electric keyboards. Um, but, he, you know, the way that he talks about it in the book is actually that he was looking for ways to accomplish uh, similar soundscapes to what he was able to achieve in his collaborations with Gil Evans without having a full orchestra and maintaining a certain level of improvisation that one can't achieve in a big band. And, you know, I'm talking from experience myself, you know, like I lead a big band, like once the chart's written, like, sure, you can have open solo sections and you can have some things that like get cued here and cued there, but by and large, it's a score and it gets read down and that's what the music is. So does that... Um, Upset any of your bandmates? So if you get a really talented not. person and they just want a longer solo, you don't have any conversations or arguments off the scenes on that? No, I've never once had like a, I and never had an argument with anybody in my band about that. But there have been, you know, I, 
conversations. You know, for example, my lead alto saxophonist, um, and also he's an assistant producer on the record, Andrew Gould. Um, you know, I, I have we have a very open relationship, and I and I'm like, hey man, what did you think about this section? Should this be longer? Should this be shorter? Um, and that's like I mentioned Andrew by name because he's an assistant producer on the record, but I have that relationship with everybody in my band. And if somebody takes a solo, I'll ask them like, hey, how did the backgrounds feel on this? Um, did they come in too soon? Um, should there be more backgrounds? Should be, there be less backgrounds? Like, I, I want to make sure that everybody's happy. Um, and that, you know, one of the things that I love about my band is that it's a group of, of um, uh, individuals of, uh, you know, a lot of them are band leaders in their own right. Um, you know, the saxophone section alone, you know, Andrew's a great band leader, but Alexa Tarantino, Lucas Pino, um, for example, Sam Dillon and Andrew Gutowskis. I mean, that's, that's the saxophone section, you know, Lucas, for example, leads a nonet. Um, and he's featured on the third track on the record called the Sphinx. Um, and you know, like that's a very long solo and a very, and I constantly ask him like, man, how do you solo over this? I don't know how to solo over it myself. Like you need to teach me, you need to give me a lesson. Um, so like, that's more the relationship than, than, uh, than me telling someone, you know? Okay. And when did you decide to make this big band? Um, I had the big band for about, uh, now it's been about 10 years, a little bit, almost 10 years is a little bit under, um, it's from when I recorded the first track, um, you know, coming up in, in Boston, I had great teachers who were inspiring me and at, like, and telling me that I should be practicing my writing. Um, and I was writing septet charts for my, for my high school ensemble. I went to Lexington high, great band director there named Jeff Leonard. Um, and he would encourage me to write music for our combo, which I did. Uh, and actually the instrumentation of that combo was trumpet, alto, tenor, and the horns and then guitar, piano, bass, drums. And that was the rhythm section. And then I kind of view the guitar in jazz, almost like the French horn in an orchestral setting where they take, you know, the French horn can take part in both the woodwinds and the brass and the strings, right? If you want to like color a line in a certain way. Um, so like guitar can fit into the rhythm section and, and aid in the comping side of things, but they can also add a little bit of bite to a melodic line and act as a horn player. So that's why I reference it as such. Um, and that ended up being the instrumentation for my first record, uh, Peace in Time, um, which is with my septet. And I just kept on, you know, there were, there were certain, I, I was listening to, when I first got to New York, I was listening to a lot of like the SF Jazz Collective. I was listening to Maria Schneider. I was very into Kenny uh, Wheeler's album, Music for Large and Small Ensembles. And then I also started studying with Gil Goldstein around that time. And I found out that he arranged um, the Michael Brecker album. Well, he arranged all of the Michael Brecker albums, but I found out that he had arranged the Quindectet record called Wide Angles. Um, and I just got the bug. I, I, I was hooked uh, and I was like, damn, there are colors here that I want to access that I just can't do with three horns. Um, you know, and some of my favorite three-horn records are like the Dexter Gordon records, Live in Paris, Our Man in Copenhagen, Our Man in Paris. <laughs> um, you know, um, Art Blakey, there's that great Wayne arrangement of Moon River. Um, a lot of Curtis Fuller's writing for that group. You know, so I, I love that vibe, but it's just different. Um, I write differently for my septet than I write for my big band, but 
big band just felt like the natural next step for me um okay in terms of what colors i was looking to so what problems or did hearing you starting the big band uh anything in new york like from space from band members people making the practice money anything yeah i mean you know economies of scale is a thing um, obviously it's more expensive to run a big band than it is to run another kind of ensemble. Um, but when I first started the band, I wasn't even 21 yet. Um, I had just gotten out of the monk competition for the first time. And I was, I was 20 years old, 19 years old, 20, whatever. I was kind of young. And, um, you know, we, like all of my colleagues were in a different place back then too. Like everybody, you know, not that people don't just want to play now, but that was the primary goal. When we, when we, when you're in college, it's like you're experimenting with what kind of music you want to create. Um, and so I organically found a band of people who were down to play and read. And that's one of the reasons that I think my band sounds the way it does is because it's always been very important to me to feature those members of the ensemble um, with solos and with unique parts that'll make them feel satisfied, uh, leave them feeling satisfied after playing the music. Um, one of my favorite big bands is the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra. I love that record. Um, it's called All My Yesterdays, um, which it's like the, it's like a bootleg recording of the first night of the Vanguard. You said it. And man, you can just, <laughs> you, you can just hear like the vibe of the band. It's, it's, it's special, man. Like it's a, it's a, it's a hang. <laughs> um, and that is uh yeah I, I i kind of like the early writing like i i kind of modeled after that band and then i got into duke ellington i got into gil evans i kind of unpacked maria schneider a little bit more and then i got into i started studying with jim mcneely and i started unpacking bob brookmeyer and um, then i got into darcy's music and um yeah okay uh so, one so I, I don't know the challenge. I didn't. I don't really think I, I experienced many challenges in the traditional sense of the word. Well, although there were certainly beautiful. Yeah, there are certainly times. Yes, there are certainly times. You know, where where where, where certain things come up, um, and it's a, uh, it's just a, you, you know, if the when there's a will, there's a way. If you take care of the music, the music takes care of you, kind of thing. Well said. So on your album, the Sphinx. What was your motivation behind that one? I'm just curious. Um, I, I, I wrote that song actually as the, when I was studying at Manhattan School of Music for my master's degree, the final assignment was for, for composition students was to write a piece for a studio orchestra. And, um, this is the piece that I wrote for that, um, for that ensemble. So it has like some orchestral textures and it has some, uh, soaring melodies that like I would give to like the first violins, for example, um, as played by Lucas Pino. Um, but the, you know, compositionally, um, the Sphinx is like this mythical creature, right? Which has three distinct parts. It's like body of a lion, wings of an eagle, head of a human man or, or woman. I think it's, you know, um, I, I think it's an interesting creature, an interesting human metaphor for like the different spiritual like the different bodies that we have as human beings like as as humans we have um our physical bodies right like mm -hmm. hi that's me i'm using my voice that's a part of my physical body we have like the spiritual 
ourselves a spiritual body, which is the thing that uh, like m- makes us who we are. That's like our soul in a kind of way. And then we have the primal body, which is the thing that's like, I'm hungry. I need food right now. <laughs> right. So like, that's what I mean by the Sphinx being a metaphor for human beings. And also when you see the Sphinx in, in like these mythical, um, you know, the Pan's Labyrinth is an example, you know, ancient Egypt is another, um, the Sphinx asks you three questions. So like this number three was coming up um, when I was writing the piece and the, and the Sphinx has three distinct, the, the, the Sphinx has three, the piece, my piece, the Sphinx has three distinct um, themes as a part of the form. It has the, the, and even in those themes, it's broken up into subsections of threes. Um, so that, and then finally there's like, you know, it starts in D major. I don't know how like much music theory talk we want to get into here, but like the brief go? synopsis oh. is that we started. I liked it. Yeah. That's why I'm oh, asking. Man. I noticed all those <laughs> yeah, layers. Thanks. That's why. <laughs> thanks man. Yeah. And then, so it starts in D major and then it uses uh, the parallel minor of D major, which is B minor as a plagal cadence to go to F sharp or G flat, depending on how you think about it. And um, I just was thinking like Egyptian plagues, um, uh, plagal cadence, it just seemed to tie together nicely that it should be called the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And also I was in Egypt shortly after writing it and I saw the Sphinx and I was like, I was like, this is, this is meant to be, this is what this song is about. Okay. And why did you go there? Just completely random off the top. Yeah. I know uh, it was a it was a tour, it was a tour. Um, okay. I, w- I was playing in Alexandria and um, Cairo with the great tenor saxophonist Chad Lefkowitz Brown in his quartet. Nice. Now one other question: Composers Shoot. like you, super talented. I love the stuff you come up with, even until the real thing comes along. Love the stuff, but can you explain to me why you're doing cover songs? Um, what do you mean? I got the world on the string. You don't like it? <laughs> no, I love the song, but the song's been done so many times. It's practically a classic real book song. I don't yeah, know why people keep recording it over and over and over and over. Well, I, I that's hope part that of my thing my own... about modern jazz. It's like we're bringing back stuff from the forties. Mm-hmm. Well, could you? I mean, no, I just ask why you you're it? doing. It. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Don't do it. I'm just saying when <laughs> artists do it. Is there a reason why you do it personally? Because no, no, I I thought I sorry I thought you were I, I didn't know you were done with. Oh, okay, yeah, so. um, um, yeah. I mean, I love that song. Um, like I said, that's the first song I ever arranged. Actually, that's the first track we ever recorded. Okay. So putting it out now, it's like giving people, you know, this record that's coming out in October. It's called Prologue. Um, it's coming out on La Reserve Records um, October 1st. And it's meant to give people a behind-the-scenes kind of look prologue. It's like what you read before you read a book. Um, so we have kinetic, and then we have prologue. Um, and prologue is the before stuff. Like, that's kind of what gives a, a bigger picture into what led me to kinetic. And that's why I'm, I released them in this order, too. Um, but, it, you know, if you listen to I've Got the World on a String, it's quite a different take on on the standard then you know then like it's 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 different like it's it's like 
it's it's a totally different vibe. Um, and so I think it's important to put your own stamp on a song sometimes, not always, but sometimes, you know, for example, you mentioned Until the Real Thing Comes Along. That song to me is all about the lyric. Um, and when you have such a great vocalist as Veronica Swift, um, you don't want to get in her way. <laughs> well you want said. to let her like <laughs> sing, sing, the, sing the song the way that she hears it. And man, that's beautiful on its own. Like, you don't even need a big band. You you just have her and and the emotions that she's communicating and the story, and that's enough. Um, and then the other cover song that I did with a vocalist on Kinetic was um, uh, "On the Street Where You Live," um, and that's a you know that arrangement is like the 2020, or now it's 2021, but it's like the 2020 take on on a on that song for My Fair Lady. You know where basically there's like a, a the the main character has like a love interest and he's basically <laughs> like the nice way to say it is that he's 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 pursuing uh his, his love interest and the 2020 way to say it is that he's stalking her <laughs> i was thinking more of so, a simp but yeah okay got it yeah <laughs> so yeah in my in my in my head like i just pictured this this dude to be like a stalker and so it's like It's just do like marching down the street. Um, and so Veronica takes on that form in that song, you know, so I, and that's a, you know, I just, I, my background is coming out of learning those, those songs. So as much as I am a composer, like the way that I, one of the ways I learned to write was to listen to those composers, Ted Kohler, you know, um, Rogers and Hammerstein, um, I, I, I'll, you know, Cole Porter. I mean, I, I don't know. I can go down the whole, the whole list of my favorites, but I guess once I'm doing it, I'll say Jerome Kern too. Mm-hmm. You know, I love those guys just as much as I love Jim McNeely and Bob Brookmeyer, Marie Schneider, Gil Evans. Like to me, like a great composer is a great composer. I also love Chopin. I I, I really love Mozart and I really love Ravel. Um, those two are especially like very huge influences on me. And I, and I notice similarities between the orchestrational styles of somebody like Mozart and somebody like Duke Ellington. Um, and so why limit? Your, I don't know. I, like I, I just always feel like you could fair. like if you're if you're if if you're looking at things like like it's that it's a box then it's going to sound like it's a box but if you look at something like it's just a great composition then you're you're able to to do your own thing with it and and add to what is an amazing canon of music mm-hmm. um that that's what I'm that's what I hope to do with with those two songs as well as with Nika's dream um yeah. Okay. Uh, another thing I'm just curious about. <laughs> so you have the New Year's Wish. I know that's an older song, not on this current album, but what was your... Mm-hmm. What? How did that come about? Um, so I, you know, Benny Banak and I used to be roommates and we've been friends since 2009. I met Benny my very first, like my very first day in New York City. Um, and so we've always had like a very strong... Uh, friendship and also a musical relationship, and so we recorded a um, a holiday record um, called uh, Se- "Season Swing and Greetings" um, that was also released on Law Reserve Records. Um, and then we decided, like during the pandemic, that we wanted to update the the record and record some more um, some some more New Year's 
songs. Uh, so we recorded two tracks. We recorded um, What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, which is Trident, you know, like the classic. And then we recorded A Midnight Wish, which is written by a wonderful new composer named Elise Wiener. And we, um, I, I, you know, I loved the song. And uh, I actually asked her and uh, Benny as well. Benny is the, the recording artist on the original recording of that. And I asked her if I could write a big band arrangement of it. And she was so thrilled. Um, and so we, with her permission, we recorded it. Um, and then uh, we're actually working right now on another project. Um, we're adding a few more tracks to the record. Um, we're releasing a holiday, an extended holiday record on Cellar Live and Law Reserve Records. We're recording that and in, in, in releasing it in November, um, just around Thanksgiving in time for the for the holiday season. Okay, man, looking forward towards that one. And Thanks, before Leander. we go, you know we like to give a shout out and show our respects to the artists who came before us. And I know you're short on time, so we're just going to get through this part, okay? I'm going to tell you an instrument and two artists. You choose one and you tell us why, okay? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> okay. On trumpet, <laughs> Wynton Marcellus or Miles Davis? Um, yikes. I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't love having to choose one. Um, I love both of those artists very, very much. Um, I'm reading the Miles autobiography right now and, you know, it would be, it, it's interesting. Like where you're, one of the first things you said is like, does jazz academia put you in a box? Like, I don't know if the answer is yes or no. To me, thankfully it was no, but like to view those artists as separately also like is, is important, but also to note that there's a lineage from Winton to, uh, from, from Miles to Winton is important. Like that's the, just the next step uh, almost. So how do you choose between two artists like that? I don't know. Who will get the solo in your band? Um, depends on the tune. Fair. Okay, odd saxophone. <laughs> John Coltrane or Kenny G? Um, I would probably go with Train, like 95% of the solos, and then maybe there's a smooth saxophone solo that that Kenny G would do would do well on. Have you heard this this record live at the showboat? This Coltrane record live at the showboat, mm -hmm. um, where he does "Easy to Remember." Yes, man, Jaleel hit me to that record. I'm just stuck on it. It's like Roy Haynes on drums. I forget who's on bass. Do you know who's on bass? Unfortunately, off the top of my head, no. <laughs> and I and there's a pianist that joins like late on the record. I I also don't know who that is. Like on impressions or something. I don't know who's playing. I'll have to ask him. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so John. On bass, Ron Carter or Christian McBride? Um, again, two wildly different musicians and one who comes, you know, n next in the lineage or like sideways in the lineage, like however you want to look at it, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly choose. I, I like both of those musicians very, very much. Boo. Okay, on <laughs> piano. Duke Ellington or Nat King Cole? Interesting. Um, I have a particular affinity for Nat King Cole's piano playing. Mm -hmm. um, and I've covered one of his songs before as well. I'm just a shy guy. Um, one of my favorite, like, unsung, no pun intended, songs from the American songbook tradition. Um, 
yeah, I, I love Nat King Cole's piano playing, and but I and but I, as a composer, maybe I'd like have a certain affinity towards Duke Ellington. Um, so this one year, it's a come on. It, it depends, um, oh, but come probably. Oh man! <laughs> but I, but I think like you know, I think, yeah, I, I, they're wildly different musicians and people, um, both of whom are huge influences on me. You got to choose one on this one. Come on, just choose one. Um, right. Well, I mean, Duke Ellington on Money Jungle sounds unlike any other person ever. But like growing up listening to Oscar Peterson and noting the connection between Nat King Cole and, and how he sounds and how Oscar sounds like that's an interesting or and also an important thing for who I am as an artist as well. Um, so I'm not choosing for, for not for, 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 for just for not choosing sake. Like I just both of those people are huge influences on me as an artist. Um, it, and it's hard to choose just one. Ooh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed the game. That, that was a fun game. Odd drums. <laughs> USC's Owens or Brian Blade? Oh, man, uh, Ulysses is a great mentor of mine and, uh, and a, also a featured drummer on my record. Um, and I listened to both him and Brian Blade when I was in high school and beyond. Um, that's another... That's, those those are two more people I can't choose between. Incredible, incredible musicians, both of them. Boo! Um, <laughs> I, I love Brian Blade, the Fellowship Band, and his approach to composition, as well as his embrace of Yuri Kane's compositional style and Myron Walden as well in that band. Um, yeah, this is this is funny. The this or that game is an interesting one, right? Yeah, you know, but. Now I'm gonna have to hit the backlash from this because then people go to email me and be like, "Why are you easy on Steven versus other people?" <laughs> oh man! Well, um, I really appreciate you having me on the podcast today, Leander, um, <laughs> and I, and I hope we can continue the conversation like in one for one of the future records. I know that this is shorter than than the usual time that you allot for artists, so thank yeah. you for working with with the time that I had available oh, no. today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Uh, could you tell the people your social media, your website, where to find your album? Sure. Yeah. Um, you can find everything at my website at www.stephenfeifkemusic.com, um, which is, uh, or, or stephenfeifke.com. Yes. S-T-E-V-E-N, F for Frank, E-I, F for Frank again, K-E.com. You can follow me on Instagram at stephenfeifke. You can follow me on YouTube at Stephen Feifke and on Facebook at Stephen Feifke Music. Okay, everyone, he's on a short time, so we're rushing him out. And once again, <laughs> this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, Leander. Appreciate it, man. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.